just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Nikki Morgan, the Culture Secretary. Morgan entered Parliament in 2010, where she was quickly promoted, and in 2014 attended Cabinet as Minister for Women. She served as Education Secretary under David Cameron, but was dismissed from the role when Theresa May entered 10 Downing Street. Morgan backed Michael Gove during the Tory leadership campaign, but still made a return to Cabinet when Boris Johnson won the contest. To the surprise of many, however, Morgan announced last month that she will not be seeking re-election. Explaining her decision, she said, Being Loughborough's MP has been the greatest privilege of my life, but the clear impact on my family and the other sacrifices involved and the abuse for doing the job of a modern MP can only be justified if ultimately Parliament does what it is supposed to do. A keen advocate of liberal conservatism and a key player in the Tories One Nation group, Morgan's departure has also been read by some as a sign that the Tories are lurching to the right. The news certainly led Guardian columnist Polly Toynbee to conclude, Nikki Morgan has gone, and with her, what was left of moderation in the Tory party. So with that, Nikki, thank you very much for joining us My today. Pleasure. And we, we can get to those points as we go on. I, I suspect you might not agree entirely with um, Strange enough, I might not, the, yeah. the Guardian on that. But before we move on to your career, on this podcast, we like to start by looking at what you were doing before you were in politics. Mm. You grew up in Surrey. Were you a political child? You joined the Conservative Party when you were in your teens, but did you have early ambitions to be Prime Minister? Oh gosh, no. No, no, no. My father was a local councillor, so when I was quite small. So I suppose I started leafleting at the age of about seven uh, to go and help him, and then he he stopped, uh, and then he stood again when I was a bit older. And I think it was down to him, really, that I joined uh, or got involved in politics, and then he pointed me towards the Conservative Party. You know, he could see I was interested in politics and current affairs, and he said, why don't you go and join the Young Conservatives in Surbiton at the time, which I did. And it started off very much as a social thing. And then I discovered that actually um, things like debating and, and, as I say, just being aware. And, of course, Margaret Thatcher was still Prime Minister. She was right at the end of her um, her tenure. Uh, she was very inspirational. And so it sort of carried on from there. And I was involved at university. And then eventually, about 10 years later, I thought, you know what, I think I can, I can be as good as the men who are in Parliament. And just touching on being a teen Tory, <laughs> if I think back to my younger days... It, wouldn't necessarily be the mainstream thing my, my friends were doing so did you find it a social thing did anyone at school think you were slightly strange for being a young conservative to, to put it I, a, I'm absolutely way? certain that they did yes and um, look I think some of my friends still think I'm very strange to be a conservative member of uh, parliament a lot of them are like well rather you than me uh, over to you I, I think in my school yearbook when I left um, it said most likely to be a strict matron or prime minister so <laughs> I'm not quite sure you know well I haven't achieved either of those things obviously uh, so my friends had a certain impression of me I think it's true to say and you then went on to attend Oxford University and you said that you stood twice to be president of the Oxford University Conservative Association and on the second time it was Dan Hanan who beat you who is now a conservative MEP yep absolutely yeah no and actually there's quite a lot of us who were all at um, Oxford at the same time people like uh, Nigel Huddleston and Damien Hines and Simon Hoare obviously people who have departed from Commons already Louise Mensch Mark Reckless and people like Jacob uh, who are um, 
um, still there. So there's a whole crowd else who are involved. And as you say, Dan is obviously an MEP. Yes, I've forgiven him because I went on to be treasurer of the Oxford gonna, Union, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, perhaps you could argue in what you've done both in, in politics. So Dan obviously has achievements to talk about that mm. you eventually got one over on him. <laughs> I think I'm going to leave your <laughs> listeners to be the judge of that. Okay. <laughs> now, when you uh, finished university, you qualified as a solicitor. At that point, did you know you wanted to go into a career in politics? No, I don't think so. Um, I, th- I think I was interested, but uh, so I qualified and started working in the City of London in 1994. And it wasn't until after the 1997 election when I'd been heavily involved. I took two weeks off work to do the Battersea campaign. The lovely John Bowes was the MP there and lost his seat. And at that point, I have to say, I did look at the Conservative Party and I thought, right, they need to look different and I'm going to put my name forward. But uh, no idea really what, what it entailed. And then finally got on the list in 19. 19- 98 uh, or 1999 actually to stand Islington South in 2001. Which isn't exactly known for being a Tory's stronghold. No, but it was a fantastic... I mean, I would say, and I think, you know, there, obviously everyone has different ways of getting into politics and being elected, but, but I, I would say that standing in a, in a no-hoper, I remember at Christmas, now Lord Smith arriving at the Count in 2001, and he said to me, have you had a good campaign? You know, have you learned all the things? And, and I think he was completely right, which was, I did not trouble the Labour majority in Islington South at all, but I did learn how to work with a local party, how to draft literature, how to be on the doorsteps with people who are not natural conservatives all of those things were really important skills when you do get a seat you need to win yeah, and just before we get on to your career because you've understand mm. enough for it I suppose as someone who's supported the conservative party from a younger age you spoke about Thatcher yep it was a major I mean why was it that you identified as a conservative and secondly what from what you were seeing made you think that the party needed to modernise or, or to have that more mainstream appeal? I yeah, suppose. so I suppose I identify as a conservative because I believe in the power of individuals. And I think that what's that Ronald Reagan phrase, what are the most scary words? I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Now, I think the government can be, you know, has, has potential to be a force for good, but I don't think government has all the answers. And so I think that's why I would never be attracted to the Labour Party or other parties, you know, at all. And certainly I think the last year has confirmed in my mind that I am very much a conservative to my my core I guess in terms of modernization perhaps for my time more when I was selected for Loughborough which is a seat we needed to win from the Labour Party I, I could just see that there was a whole group of people in the middle who had traditionally perhaps voted for Blair but had conservative instincts and I just felt that we needed to be a party that appealed to those sort of soft supporters of other parties And there's no doubt that actually I think if you have a hard-edged sort of really over-to-the-right conservatism, there is a danger that you lose that centre ground. And and that's in a seat like Loughborough, you have to have those swing voters to win it. And you won that seat. I did. Um, Second attempt. Second time, yep. And when you uh, entered Parliament in 2010 from that election, what surprised you about Parliament? Well, I'd never worked in Parliament before. I'd never been a volunteer. I'd popped in perhaps and met sitting MPs for a cup of coffee or to get, um, you know, careers advice. I think what struck me at the time was that there is absolutely no training to be a Member of Parliament. I spent six and a half years as a candidate, and it was only right at the end that I remember having a conversation with another MP's wife about exactly how life was going to work as an MP, because you never want to preempt being elected. But I had to think how I was going to juggle home and, and family life and what being an MP meant, what were the hours. And I, I I'm staggered that we ask people to be effectively 650 little business units, 
no HR training, no how do you manage a team, no sort of help with casework. I mean, there is help because you go and talk to other MPs. But I remember the first bit of casework I got, I think it was about school admission, and not having a counsellor as well, I, I thought, crikey, what on earth? I've got somebody's child's future in my hands. How do I help them? And of course you learn it, and, and there are people to support you. But I do find that extraordinary. It's a really important job being an MP, and we just kind of throw people in the deep end. Yeah, was that overwhelming at times? In this well, I, re- I remember a really clear impression on the uh, being on the escalators, going up to Portcullis House, uh, probably two or three weeks in, and thinking kind of, what have I done to my life? Because, you know, I think any, any job, and I'm about to go through it again, I think any transition... All of us, although I'm quite happy for, I like change and new situations, you do think to yourself, I thought I had things sorted, and suddenly it's all up in the air again, and I've got to work out a whole new way of of living and working. Now, you promoted quickly, but before you uh, went into cabinet roles, you were an assistant whip. Mm. Um, Did that open your eyes to, I suppose, how Parliament really works in terms of, you mentioned no HR, but often the whips office is almost seen as a dark arts um, (laughs) section. Well, I think... I think you certainly learn a lot about your colleagues as a whip. And um, it is quite extraordinary. Yes, I say no more than that. And you're working with, you have a flock of MPs to look after. So, and every MP, as I say, is a total individual. So you've got to work out what motivates them. I think the nice thing about being a whip is you get to sit on the bench and you get to watch Parliament. You get to really see how colleagues on both sides of the House and also how the House of Commons operates and about parliamentary procedure. And undoubtedly, it stood me in really good stead for being a minister in the department because I'm able to say, well, actually, I think this is when the vote's going to happen. This is how the, the day's going to pan out, which I think is what you get from being a, a whip. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you're promoted to Minister for Women, um, but you didn't get the qualities brief at that time. And at the time, there were many who made the conclusion that the reason for that was because you had voted against the government policy of allowing same-sex marriage. Yeah. Was that a factor in it? I honestly don't know. I suspect it probably was. You know, that's that's fair enough. And I think, look, one of the things I've been very clear that I think I got that vote wrong. And I think one of the things about being a minister, one of the things I look back on my nine and a half years is I'm a far sort of I suppose, broader person having done this role, being a local MP, but being a minister, because you get to hear lots of different views. And on that one, I heard very quickly from people who said, well, actually, I don't understand your decision, friends and others. And I was pretty clear that um, that I got it wrong. And then Cameron made you Education Secretary. You replaced Michael Gove. At the time, it wasn't entirely clear Michael Gove wanted to be replaced. Or or I think the people around Michael. I think that's the other thing, is, is people invest an awful lot in the minister... And so I think Michael had, because he knew it was coming, because he'd, he'd had the conversations, I think the people around him were so deeply, deeply shocked. That was the really hard change yeah. point. What was it like stepping into stepping into that role? Uh, Michael Gove is a friend mm. of yours. Do you feel like you have to almost protect the legacy of your predecessor, or do you feel like you can make it your own brief? No, so look, I've known Michael since Oxford days. I have to say he was incredibly generous about that, that, that change and was, was, you know, was able to offer um, a view about things if I asked them. He didn't volunteer it, but he waited and, and, and I, you know, sent him out a couple of things. I mean, again, it was a huge transition. And I think to go from step up, even from just being a, a junior minister or a minister attending cabinet to being a full cabinet minister, suddenly you're in the glare of publicity. I didn't know the lobby very well uh, at that point. They didn't know me. You're running a department. There were big shoes to fill because Michael had introduced a lot of change. And and the instruction from David Cameron at the time was, you know, carry on doing what we're doing, but we just need to do it perhaps in a way that is less confrontational. And I think the other thing, so, and I completely support the changes that Michael did. I think as a government, as a party, we should be really proud of lifting standards and things like Teach First and, and the academy system and everything else and free schools. 
I guess you have to find something that is your own. And for me, it was the bit about character education, which I eventually wrote a book about, which I was able then to, to push, because mental health has always been a really big issue of mine. And it's not just about mental health, but that goes to the heart of you know, what makes up a, a person. And with the gift of hindsight, um, is there anything you would have done differently from your time as education secretary? Oh, gosh, I'm sure. Uh, I'm absolutely certain there is. I think anybody who says they, they've Every done jobs. Um, I think, I think that, that, well, it, my great regret with the education role is that we published a white paper in March 2016, just at the moment when, frankly, it all kind of began to fall apart because we were in the referendum campaign, we couldn't do anything else. And I think there was also a big controversial policy about compulsory academisation. I think it was the right thing to do, and I still think that actually there are a number of very small schools who would benefit from being part of a trust and working with other schools, but clearly the way we handle it was not ideal. Um, now you mentioned the EU referendum there. I do think listeners are probably quite <laughs> updated on on everyone's Brexit views. Yes. Um, but just just in case, I mean, you campaigned for Remain. Yep. We know that Leave won. Yep. Cameron ended up leaving. Tory leadership contest gets underway, and all of a sudden, Theresa May is Prime Minister. Something which I think very few, including um, c- commentators, <laughs> saw coming. And. Theresa May forms her cabinet and you are told that your services are not required. Did that come as a surprise and also just on a pure nosy level? How does the conversation go when you are let go from cabinet? Because you're not invited to the front door of Downing Street, which is usually a sign. So you're right. If you're summoned to the Prime Minister's House of Commons office, just offer this as a tip for anybody else in the future, on reshuffle day, um, it's not good news, basically. And to be fair, your blushes are spared. And I think that's that's important thing. Um, Was I surprised to be let go? No, because I was pretty clear that like any Prime Minister, she would want her own cabinet. And she had a lot of people who'd supported her during the leadership, not me. So there were other people she's going to bring in. Was I disappointed? Yes, because actually I think, and I think it's what Boris Johnson has done well, which is to bring in people from different bits of the party and not necessarily always um, supporters, because I think that's really important. What, um, so, you know, and what happens? Well, as you say, you get someone to the House of Commons office, you know, shown in. I mean, I think the story I've already told is, is that I had to fire myself effectively because she sort of lost the words. And um, eventually I said, congratulations, Prime Minister. And I, you know, and she said, I'm sorry, there's not room in the cabinet for you. And then it was a little pause. And so I'm, and I said, well, you're going to let me go. And she went, oh, yes, that's right. And um, right, OK, thank you very much. Um, I did ask why. I didn't get an answer. Um, did you get silence or...? I just got a sort of, well, I want to have my own team around me, which, which I think is perfectly you know, fair enough. And then, and then out you go. Now, while we're on this topic, we're going to have to briefly talk about Trizergate. It garnered a lot of column inches at the time, which, which is quite, it's one of those things, sometimes I think stories you don't expect, I suppose, gain momentum. And what happened for those who are not aware who are listening to this podcast was Theresa May posed in a photo shoot in a pair of leather trousers, but not just any pair of leather trousers. They cost over £900. And later on, I think in an interview, it was raised and you questioned whether this was such a wise move given her agenda, mm. the gist about managings and suggested that you'll never spend so much money on an item of clothing. Then um, you were apparently uninvited from a meeting on Brexit. Were you surprised to be uninvited from that meeting? Did, did you expect these comments to, I suppose, get the attention they did receive? So firstly, I think when you're doing an interview, you kind of often get a sense if you say something. I mean, I didn't, I didn't expect the comment, honestly, to get the coverage that it did. And I think you're right. Sometimes it's obviously you know, surprising stories will get that coverage, partly because they're sort of simple 
to portray, which is two the, people having a disagreement. Yeah, so, no, I suppose a bit more exciting than the minutiae of a, of a trade deal. I think that is extremely true. And I think people are always interested in sort of relations between um, leading protagonists, if you like, in, in, in Westminster. You know, do I regret? I mean, I think undoubtedly I, I could have handled it better in an interview, like not answering a question. And um, yeah, do I, I expect I, to be disinvited to the meeting? I wasn't particularly surprised, but I think the, what it demonstrated, it was symptomatic, I'm afraid, of the number 10 operation at that time, which was not about building bridges. And I think, I haven't read it yet, but I think the Anthony Seldon Mayor 10 book is probably going to set this out quite well, about the way that actually this really just didn't help in terms of party management, parliament management, all those things. Yeah, because I do remember at the time, you, you almost became one of the one of the rebels. And I, yeah. I, I remember being at an event at Conservative Party conference, I think perhaps the first Theresa May to become prime minister and you were speaking and you said that you noticed there was, there was a whip in the room. Yep. Um, so you clearly made the naughty list, which again was almost this quite strange flip from covering someone yeah. who had such a prominent role in cabinet to suddenly, what are they going to say? Yeah, I, mean, I think actually, and I wrote an article recently and I think we've seen that a little bit recently. You know, there is undoubtedly when you've been a, a minister and then, and then you're not, I think some people handle it with enormous good grace. Um, some people are very disappointed. And I know what it's like to, to, to take it, you know, personally and, and not, as I say, to, to, to say the right things and all the rest of it. And I, my, my advice to people, you know, has been don't go down that path because, honestly, once you've done it, you then have to bring yourself back. You know, you have to issue an apology, take a deep breath and then think, actually, how you're going to handle yourself. And I think it's a lesson. That's one of the big lessons I've learned, certainly, in the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, we don't have an endless podcast in our own times, but you have, you could say you've been on a journey, yeah. in, to, to use perhaps an American term, <laughs> in, in terms of, I suppose, Brexit. I mean, while you were on the backbenches, you were the mm. chair of the Treasury Select mm. Committee, which is a very esteemed role. But I suppose one of the things your name often came up from is the Malthouse Compromise. Yeah. <laughs> and there was a point when you were almost seen as one of the Brexit rebels who was pushing for a customs union. Yep. Why was it you, I mean, you now serve in Boris Johnson's cabinet, and at, po- at one point it seemed no no deal could be Mm, what was going to happen what was it that made you reconsider your Brexit position I suppose move closer aligned to the Brexiteers in the party one of my my reasons for standing down has been my enormous frustration with parliament and the fact that parliament has not found a way through the Brexit quagmire I think there was an opportunity for MPs to find a way if they wanted a so-called softer Brexit and particularly around the indicative votes process and MPs did not take that and I think that that is a great that was you know it's a great shame and I think after that process, my view, uh, you know, had been, or actually before, but had been, look, we've got to find a way through. So the country is looking. So MPs triggered, a loud referendum happened, they triggered Article 50, and then couldn't work out what to, to do next, basically. And obviously in a hung parliament, that's even harder. Um, and so I thought, again, you know, going back to where I was, was just saying, you can carry on being sort of difficult and kicking against the system, or you can go, actually, how am I going to find to try and find a way through this? Loughborough was a 50-50 voting constituency in the referendum, so trying to balance that. And so when I was asked by Kit Malthouse, would I sit down with people who had very different Brexit views from me, I thought, well, actually, what harm can it do? And then when you start to talk to people, you understand why they're coming from that perspective, what it is they hope to achieve, and why actually keeping no deal on the table is really important in terms of getting to a negotiation. Uh, and I think actually the Prime Minister Boris Johnson has, has shown that in the deal that he has absolutely got, which I completely support. So all those things. And you're right. I think that, I mean, the reason I would say being an MP is a fabulous thing is because you are learning every single day, often in, you know, the spotlight, often in a rather brutal way. But you are constantly being challenged and learning. And you have to, I mean, I'm, I'm very clear that if you want to make progress in life, you have to work with people of different views to try to find a way forward.
Um, now, you mentioned there your decision to not seek re-election. Mm. I think it's fair to say it was one of the surprise uh, moves in, the, in that sense, because we have heard a lot of MPs saying they're not seeking re-election, mm. including uh, female MPs specifically, or at least female MPs who you don't feel have got to the age yet, where they mm. would necessarily end their career in politics. But for you, I mean, you, you're back in the cabinet, you you have a leader who you seem to support. Yeah. So I think some people are left scratching their heads as to, as to what it is. Now, you mentioned one re- reason on Brexit. The other thing you touched on was, you know, the abuse that MPs yep. now receive. Is that one of the big factors in your decision that, the, I suppose, the environment that now faces an MP? So I think the environment is, is a good way of putting it. You know, obviously, the, the abuse is, is a factor. The bigger thing, I think, and I think particularly for women in my experience, both professionally and in, in Westminster, I think we all make decisions about whether the environment we're operating in is conducive to achieving what we want to achieve. And therefore, you know, the, the, the decision for me was actually looking at the environment. Um, I found Parliament incredibly frustrating. I have to say, being DCMS secretary and working Boris Johnson was one of the reasons, in a way, not to stand down because I love, uh, I love being in cabinet and I love doing the DCMS role. But I found that the frustration of Parliament actually, um, you know, not being able to do that, and then weighing that up against the impact that the job of an MP has on my family, who live 100 miles away from home, and I've said, you know, I've got an 11-year-old son. If I sign up for another five years, he'll be 16 by the time the next election rolls around. And I've never been to a parents' evening. You know, I, now I think is the time to step back. But I'm very conscious that, you know, I don't want it to be seen that this is not a role for women to be in because we need more female MPs. And we've got some great women, you know, who are still going to be there. You know, Vicky Atkins and Victoria Prentice and obviously my fellow female cabinet members. You know, so there are lots of women and we're selecting more brilliant women in the Conservative Party too. And when you've had conversations with those women who have chosen not to seek mm. re-election so you have Amber Rudd Seema Kennedy do you get the sense that it is a similar factors for them in terms of the, I suppose the environment uh no facing <sighs> or do you think it's more how the party has changed no I don't think it's how the party well look I mean obviously uh, Amber speak. doesn't have yeah. uh, the uh, the whip um and all the people like Anne Milton so I mean they will have their own particular reasons Margot obviously had lost the whip and then come back I think she cited the differences with her local uh, party for example I think for others it literally is just sometimes the logistics of being able to, to to manage everything everyone's got their own slightly different reasons but you know I also don't think it's a bad thing having you know MPs coming I think the 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 days probably particularly for women of kind of a uh, wanting to do it for 30 years I just think that's not going to be in many people's experiences these just, days just because of the demands of the job the demands of the job and I think also people entering politics when they're younger and then making a decision about whether there's something else they want to go on and, and, and do you know I think there's many ways look I'm going to play a, a full role in the coming campaign I expect to play a full role in the Conservative Party uh, hereafter and um, I hope that there's a role you know potentially for me in public life at some point now, just the, the other factor which I mentioned in the introduction was, um, you know, the One Nation Tory group yep. you're involved with, Liberal Conservatism, and how some have read some of the departures. And I, and I think back to you, I chaired the... Yes, you did, brilliantly. Lead, thank you, I'll pay you later. <laughs> um, I chaired the leadership debates for the One Nation caucus. Mm. But if I think back to that room, it feels as though if we were to do that again in the future, and then it would be... a a lot of those faces wouldn't be there. Figures like Nicholas Soames, as well as you know, Amber Rudd, a lot of people are, are not going to be in the next parliament, uh, regardless of how yep. the election goes. So what do you say to those who see this, who read this as a sign that your strand of conservatism that that group pushes for is under threat? 
Well, I, mean, I, would, I would completely disagree with that as an assertion. I think you're right, it definitely has been written about. But actually, I think the One Nation tradition in the Conservative Party is alive and well. And as I say, there's lots of next-generation One Nation uh, MPs, um, you know, people like uh, Matt Warman or Nigel Huddleston, uh, Vicky Ford, you know, Rachel McLean, all sorts of people um, who will be there to, to fly the flag. And I think that's a good thing as well. I'm really proud of having set up the caucus earlier on this year. I think it was important for there to be that voice. It was really important for us to do those leadership hustings. And look, the great greatest champion, I think, of One Nation Conservatism is Boris Johnson. I mean, you know, the man is a, uh, he is a, a social liberal. I mean, the, the change he made in immigration, for example, this summer about students being able to stay on, is not a change you'd have seen under the previous uh, number 10. And, um, and I think, I mean, the party needs to be a broad church. I think if you look at the candidates being selected, you will find that broad church being replicated. And just on that, I just wondered how you feel about Amber Rudd's treatment there, because there was a sense that some MPs were getting the whip restored. Mm. Amber, who you know very well, mm. she, she gave an interview suggesting that she had been led to believe she was getting the whip restored. But then there was a letter which mm. seemed to be briefed out with, um, I don't know, in some quarters to make a point by the chief whip saying, you know, laying out in detail how it was an honour and she didn't deserve that. Did you think her treatment was a bit shoddy? I mean, it's difficult to know not being part of it, but I'm really sad that Amber, you know, it's a great shame that things happened which led to the losing of the whip in the first place. And I know how much it would have meant to her not to have had, you know, to, to, to have the whip restored before she decided to stand down. And I'm really, you know, I'm sorry that didn't happen. I, I understand the reasons why. Look, I think there are times, and I've had to do it in this this year, where you just have to swallow hard and vote with the party, with your colleagues, because actually, at the end of the day, you know, we are a party, and we are we are much stronger if we hang together. And I think that is the lesson, really, of the last twelve months. And um, there are always going to be disagreements. A Conservative Party is like a big family, and we're all going to disagree with each other, but like Christmas lunch. But ultimately, you've got to work out a way of of, of you know getting getting yourselves back together again and and I hope that Amber will in time you know she'll have some time away and then hopefully she'll she'll be able to, to you know be supportive of the party in the future. Now final two questions I hear as recently as the last political cabinet Boris Johnson has been suggesting that he would do anything to uh, convince <laughs> you to stay um, <laughs> and reverse your decision which I don't get the sense this podcast has worked yet but um, <laughs> do you think there's a chance in the future you could make a return to politics? Oh golly I don't know well so, um, look I'm not leaving politics I think I'm leaving the House of Commons who knows what the future holds but I am a very very strong conservative say I think what I've learnt this year is that I'm a conservative to my core I hope there's a way for me to serve the party uh, as I say to do something in public life my philosophy in life is that it's very once you've made a decision it's difficult to go back on that and I don't think you ever recreate the the situation you're in but you know I'm up for or new challenges and all the rest of it. I mean, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister did say, is there anything I can do to make you change your mind? And I said, no, I've made my mind up, <laughs> which he was he understood out completely. So, um, but, uh, but we shall see. And finally, this is a question we ask everyone on this podcast, but if we have a, a new group of parliamentarians g- going in, perhaps they'll find this useful as to know what to listen to and what not to. <laughs> and that's, what is the worst advice you have ever been given? Well, so when I was a very new MP, there was a, a day when my husband and son were on their way down from Leicestershire and we suddenly found at the last minute that we were going to have to sit late because of a debate on the EU. This is back in, must have been 2010, 2011. And I let rip at the uh, chief whip at the 1922 committee. And um, after that, we had a division and I voted and, and um, a rather pompous old Conservative came up to me and said, you do realise you might have to work long hours in this job. And I thought, 
if I haven't worked that out after six and a half years being a candidate and working in the city for 16 years, you know, which planet do you think I'm on? So my, my advice would be, sometimes our older MPs have great advice to listen to, but not always. So take it all with a big pinch of salt. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. 